Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we have lighted the candle of peace, we are reminded of the words of the poet, but there is no peace. We live in a world that is filled with turmoil. Around the world we know of wars going on, of the devastation that war has brought and continues to bring. We mourn over those who have died because of war. And we would cry out to you, will you not bring an end to these wars? We look around us and know we are not facing war, but in many ways, we are at war with other people, and often we are also at war within ourselves because we live amidst turmoil and trouble. We don't get along with everyone. Many times we are not at peace within ourselves. All these, Father, are symptoms of the reality that we live in a world that is cursed by sin. And we thank you that at this time we can give you thanks in the midst of a world of turmoil and trouble. We thank you that we have hope, not a vain wish, but a sure and steadfast hope that there will be peace because Christ has come and he has brought about peace by his death on the cross. And he has risen again to bring in the new creation and we who are part of that new creation have the privilege of not just being at peace with God, but of demonstrating that peace in our life together, in our coming together to give praise and thanks to you, our God, uniting our voices, uniting our hearts in worship so that we foreshadow that peace that you will bring about when Christ returns. And so... As we have sung, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we thank you that Christ has come and we thank you that he is coming. And with all our hearts, we cry out, Maranatha, O Lord, come. Be with us now as we hear your word. Strengthen our hearts so that we may serve your purposes for our good and for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We turn now to the book of Luke. When we studied the book of James, we talked about cultivating a gospel culture. Ultimately, a gospel culture develops 
as each one of us in community with one another grows into an increasingly intimate relationship with Jesus, our Savior. And that's why we will be studying the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke was written to challenge us to respond to Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why I've entitled this series, Come Unto Jesus. And many thanks to Janice Vanek for the wonderful artwork. And then I messed it up with putting that little thing underneath. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, Luke is challenging us to respond to Jesus of Nazareth, the historical person who fulfills God's plan of salvation. In his introductory dedication to Theophilus, Luke is asserting that he is narrating what really happened. He has done comprehensive research, so he is sure of the facts. But he's not just giving us facts. He is giving us a theological interpretation of historical events so that, according to verse 4, we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. And so as we go into the text, I'd like us to read the section known as the Magnificat. It captures Mary's response to the wondrous prospect of giving birth to Jesus the Messiah. Luke presents her as a model of faith, and she is praising God because he lifts up the lowly. Let's read Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to verse 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abram, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, over the last few weeks, Several couples in the church have announced that they are having a baby. And we join them in praising the Lord. These announcements are joyful occasions. But the interesting thing is that in this passage, in Luke chapter 1, we have two pregnancy announcements that brought fear rather than joy. And I think we can understand that because it was an angel that made the announcements. And... Angels are scary creatures. They're the stuff of nightmares. They are not the cute cherubs of popular imagination. Their glory and majesty bring fear because they come from the presence of God. And their very presence instills dread in sinful creatures like you and me. Moreover, the angel announces the birth 
to, the, to a parent the birth of an unexpected baby. In this case, Zechariah the priest in chapter 1. Zechariah was already jittery because he was burning incense in the temple. It was a once-in-a-lifetime service opportunity that he was privileged to perform on behalf of the people. He had to draw lots. The, the priests would draw lots to choose whoever would be burning incense in the temple. And when the angel appeared in verse 11 and 12, at the right side of the altar of incense, Zechariah wasn't just startled, he was terrified. He could have had a heart attack. And so the angel quickly reassures him in verse 13 to 17. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at its birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now you notice the angel threw in a gender reveal. But it wasn't the gender reveal that was astounding. The news was mind-boggling because according to verse 7, Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Their situation had seemed hopeless. Now in our day, not being able to have a children is a very difficult situation for many couples. We do have a better understanding of the reasons behind infertility, but it can still be a painful subject. But during that time, people thought that a couple could not conceive because of some sin. That's embarrassing enough in society. Imagine what it means for a priest and his wife. And that's why Luke was very careful to observe in verse 6 and describe Elizabeth and Zechariah as righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. As if to say, it wasn't their fault that they couldn't have kids. But now, finally, after many years of prayer, God was going to change that. God was going to finally answer their prayers for a child. And even better, God was not simply acting on the behalf of Elizabeth and Zechariah. You see, the barrenness of Elizabeth evoked the spiritual reproach of Israel under the Romans. They might have already returned to the land, but as far as the Jews were concerned, they were still in exile because they were still under foreign rule. And after many long, long years of waiting, God was finally going to reverse the exile of his people. And the child that God would give Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a significant role in the unfolding of God's purposes. Here you see that God's purposes are far greater than Elizabeth and Zechariah could have ever imagined. And he was giving them the privilege of being part of the way God was fulfilling his plans for his people. 
And not just for his people, but for the whole world. So John would be a joy and delight to his parents because he would be a prophet empowered by the Holy Spirit. A prophet after 400 years of not having a prophet. Here is a prophet coming, empowered by the Spirit to call the people of Israel to repent and be reconciled to God. His role would be to prepare the people for God's salvation. That's an amazing act of grace towards Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so you would expect Zechariah to be overjoyed at this wonderful news, right? And no less than an angel, a messenger of God, brings this news. But look at verse 18. Sadly, he responds in unbelief. Zechariah responds, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And it's especially disappointing because he's an Israelite and a priest. As a priest... And an Israelite, he knew that God had given Isaac to Abraham and Sarah when they were even older than he was. I mean, remember, Sarah was 90. Abraham was 100. Zechariah, because he was able to still serve as a priest, would maybe have been in his 60s. As surprising as the angel's announcement was, God had done it before. Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, had every reason to believe the news from the angel. But I think we can understand, because like us, Zechariah found trusting difficult. We, we struggle to take God at its word, don't we? And like Zechariah, we want guarantees that put us in control. And so the angel, in verse 19, responds, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. You could tell that Gabriel wasn't impressed as he states the obvious. I come from God himself. Like, really? Zechariah had no excuse for his unbelief. But in the face of that unbelief, God shows grace to Zechariah. Verse 20, God would discipline Zechariah by giving him a sign. He wouldn't be able to speak until John was born. It was God's gracious way of teaching him to trust. Now, at this point in time, the people are getting antsy. Zechariah had been, excuse me, inside the temple for a long time. They were wondering, is he dead? What's happening? So they were very relieved when he came out. And when he came out, he was trying to communicate to them in gestures. They realized that he had a vision, but he couldn't tell them the good news he had just received because, well, he couldn't speak. So he goes home to Elizabeth, and they have their normal relations, and she became pregnant. And according to verse 25, she goes into seclusion, recognizing that God's grace towards her Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now in verse 26, Luke does something very interesting. He uses Elizabeth's pregnancy as the reference point 
for an even greater pregnancy announcement made by the angel Gabriel. Six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel goes to a young lady named Mary. And in doing that, in making Elizabeth's pregnancy the reference point, Luke is inviting us to compare and contrast these two announcements. Gabriel foretold the birth of John to his father, a man. And a man respected in Israel because he was old and he was a priest. Gabriel came to Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem. That was the most important place in Israel. While he was performing the most significant act to which a priest could aspire. He was burning incense in the temple. So you might say that from addressing the heights of privilege, Gabriel now goes to Nazareth, a small town in Galilee about four days' journey from Jerusalem. It was a place of very little economic or political importance. In fact, in John, when Nathanael is told, the Messiah comes from Nazareth, his response was, Nazareth? Can any good come from Nazareth? A place of no account. And then Gabriel speaks to a virgin betrothed to a man named, Jos to a man named Joseph. We recognize that Mary is a young woman of limited status in, Israel's, in Israelite society. Mary, in other words, is a nobody in an insignificant town. But Gabriel comes to her and says, verse 28, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, how would you feel if you got a greeting? First of all, if you saw an angel in front of you and he gave you that kind of greeting. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Well, I don't know how you would respond, but Mary was understandably troubled and perplexed by the greeting and not a little scared by the angel. And so Gabriel goes on, verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now that, frankly, is inconceivable. This virgin would give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. John would be great before the Lord. Jesus would be great in and of himself as the Son of the Most High. But where the announcement to Zechariah had historical precedent in Abraham and Sarah, the announcement to Mary was completely unprecedented. I know this was overused a few years ago, but this is really unprecedented. Never in the history of the world had a virgin conceived. And I dare say, for the rest of eternity, no virgin will ever conceive. And Mary was completely surprised 
because she knew where babies came from. She knew how babies were produced. And so she asks in verse 34, uh, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, please understand, unlike Zechariah, she believes the angel's message. She only wants clarification. This is not unbelief. This is, uh, okay, sure. How's that going to happen? And Gabriel explains without reproaching her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Very simply, Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit would exercise His infinite creative power to cause Mary to conceive apart from sexual intercourse. The details are a biological mystery. So all you biology people, we don't know. God is going to do a one-of-a-kind supernatural act because this son would be unique. He is the son of God. And though Mary didn't ask for a sign, Gabriel offers her a sign. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I hope you understand. For Elizabeth, her pregnancy took away her disgrace. For Mary, a betrothed virgin, her pregnancy would be a disgrace. The neighbors would never believe the story. And forget the neighbors. Joseph would know that the child was not his. He would have every reason to break the engagement, lest he be, lest he be perpetuating a lie, and lest he be labeled a fornicator. This good news from the angel was more like bad news for Mary. Nonetheless, look at how she responds in verse 38. She responds in faithful submission. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, we don't worship or venerate Mary, but Luke is presenting Mary as a model of genuine faith. James Edwards comments, her response is perhaps the best definition of faith in the Bible, the desire for God's word to become a reality in our lives. She receives God's word in abandonment and trust. The troubling word of verse 29 has become the sustaining word, the sole sufficiency of her life. That's genuine faith. And her humble trust in the Lord and embrace of her God-given role weren't just words. She demonstrates her faith by hurrying to see Elizabeth. Now, this wasn't just a trip around the block. It would have taken her several days. And when she gets to Elizabeth, she gets a welcome behind, beyond her wildest expectations. Because at the sound of Mary's voice, John in Elizabeth's womb jumps He's already fulfilling his task of announcing the Messiah. 
And Elizabeth, verse 42, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, had thought in terms of merely human possibilities. Mary thought in terms of divine possibilities. She responds to God's favor in faith with an empty hand stretched out to receive God's promises. And so she is blessed. And from the depths of her soul, Mary responds to God's favor in the Magnificat. The favor of God announced by Gabriel and confirmed by Elizabeth. She responds in joyous praise. And her Magnificat reminds us both of Hannah's prayer and the Psalms of Israel. Now don't miss this. Luke records her song in order to give us the theological significance of these events. Mary is magnifying God for what he has done. Verse 48 and 49, He has exerted his mighty hand on behalf of a lowly nobody like her. It tells us that the infinite, eternal king of the universe cares for lowly people just like you and me. Alistair Begg says, God's greatness is revealed in his intimacy with us. He does know my name and he does know yours. He knows about and he cares about the responsibilities that weigh heavy on you, the quiet disappointments that gnaw at you, and the concerns that keep you awake at night. He knows about your hopes and aspirations and the moments that make your heart sing. The Creator is mindful of you, and that gives you value. Whatever the world sees when it looks at you and however you are treated by those around you, He is mindful. Isn't that wonderful? And you know the better part? God isn't just mindful. He is active on our behalf. So Mary goes on. He demonstrates his holiness and covenant faithfulness by bringing salvation, not just for Mary, but for all his people. Verse 51 and 52, he is taking down the proud and exalting the humble, delivering the poor and the oppressed. God is coming to turn the world upside down or more properly, he would turn the world right side up. Again, James Edwards sums it up. The Magnificat reverses all protocol and expectation. God who is high becomes low. He sees human need and initiates a revolution that reorders reality. The transcendent God intercedes on behalf of a lowly young woman and calls her blessed. The Almighty gives mercy to those who fear Him and scatters the strong, proud, and rich while filling the hungry and needy with all good things. He, exer he exerts His mighty power in covenant faithfulness, keeping His promise to Abraham. And so Mary has every reason to rejoice. 
And when we go to the end of Luke, we realize that God exercises His infinite power in the weakness of the cross. See, that's the ultimate reversal that God brings about by His death. Jesus defeats sin and Satan. And by His resurrection, He defeats death and gives the life of the new creation to those who fear Him. And that's the second reason why Luke includes Mary's song. He is inviting us to join Mary in giving praise to God. He is calling us to respond to God's grace shown to us in Christ by entrusting ourselves to Him. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, will you not come to Him today in repentance and faith? Will you be like Zechariah who responds in unbelief at the good news of of God's salvation? Or will you be like Mary submitting to God in faith? Will you not join us in praising Jesus our Savior? And for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, the reason we can rejoice is that His Spirit has defeated our proud rebellion against Him. And He has humbled us to put our faith in the Son. Jesus has shown us mercy beyond our wildest dreams by paying the price of our sin through His death. And by His resurrection, He has given us new hearts that fear Him. And in so doing, He has guaranteed our future forever. So that as we live in the already, not yet, we look forward to the consummation of God's kingdom when Christ returns to rule in righteousness and peace forever. So as the people of God, let our souls magnify the Lord, the lifter of the lowly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for you who are mighty have done great things and holy is your name. There is none like you, Father. And you have demonstrated your greatness by sending your Son. Demonstrating your greatness in the humility and self-humbling of Jesus. We thank you that he demonstrated to us his greatness, the meaning of true greatness by giving himself for us. And therefore you have exalted him to the highest place so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Thank you, Lord, that we can do that now anticipating that great day when every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow. And Lord, we pray that all of us would bow now for we realize that on that great day when Christ returns, those who have not put their faith in Christ will bow not in joyful adoration 
but in dread fear. For they pronounce the sentence upon themselves of condemnation. So, Father, we pray, may you be gracious. And may it cause all here who hear your voice, who hear your word, to turn to you in faith. This we ask not for our sakes, but for the glory and honor of your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.